With the 2020 U.S. presidential election all but upon us, media are rife with prognostications about which way voters are going to swing. Will reliably red states stay red, or will voters produce a blue wave that crashes across the country? Will economic uncertainty trump concerns over COVID-19? Is political polarization really as set in stone as some have suggested? Understanding voter behavior is a focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me are regular panelists, John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell, former Chair of Media journalism and film. Our guest today is Andrew Gelman. Gelman is a professor of statistics and political science, as well as director of the Applied Statistics Center at Columbia University. He's received the Outstanding Statistical Application Award three times from the American Statistical Association, the award for best article published in the American Political Science Review, and the Council of Presidents of Statistical Societies Award for outstanding contributions by a person under the age of 40. His research interests include why it's rational to vote, why campaign polls are so variable when elections are so predictable, the statistical challenges of estimating small effects, and research methods amongst a variety of other things. Gelman's also the author of the book Red State, Blue State, Rich State, Poor State, Why Americans Vote the Way They Do. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm glad to be here. How did voting become a research interest for you? I'd just always been interested in politics. I was a political science minor in college. And then when I was in graduate school studying statistics, my best friend was a political science PhD student. So I would go to seminars in the political science department. And I found out that it was possible as a statistician to to contribute. Um, One of the first things that I worked on was estimating what's called the seats votes curve um, in Congress, which is, well, you could say the percentage of seats won by the Republican Party, say, in the legislature as a function of the percentage of votes that they get. And in any given election, you can look at maybe the Republicans might get 48% of the vote and 49% of the seats or whatever it is. You can look at what's happening in one election after another, um, and you can we use statistical modeling. So the avail- the techniques that had been used previously were based on fitting simple curves to the seats votes curve, or fitting things like normal distributions or other distributions to um, the votes that people had received. And my colleague and I. Um, went further by fitting a a latent variable model, which allowed for swings from one election to another, but also uncertainty. Um, That approach has since been used in many redistricting cases. And Mm -hmm. so that's how I got started. So has that changed a lot over time? I mean, it sounds like this is a, a, a classic strategy for looking at things like gerrymandering and other kinds of uh, restructuring. Gerrymandering is worse than it used to be um, for a few reasons. So part of it is traditionally, there are countries that do nonpartisan redistricting. It's just considered, well, like the United States, we have a nonpartisan census bureau, right? So they, they count. It's not their career employees and they do their jobs. Uh, there are a lot of government agencies like that. Um, 
it used to be, there are countries where redistricting is just done in that way. Um, it's not considered to be part of the spoil system. In the United yeah. States, there are some states that do things in a nonpartisan way. Other states do bipartisan redistricting. They have a bipartisan commission. But there are states that do it in a partisan way, although even there, they're somewhat constrained by the courts uh, to not be um, too biased. What's happened since 1990, when we started working on this, first technology, so you they have a lot more data, it's easier to draw a, a more rigged plan than, than, in, than before. The second thing is with political polarization, states tend to be more dominated by one party or another. So there are fewer constraints. Um, the norms have changed. That's become more considered more acceptable um, to do a partisan redistricting. Sometimes the attitude is that we'll do it when we're in power and the other party can do it when they're in power. It's just part of the system. The courts have generally ruled that it's up to the legislature to decide these things. So they're, they're loath to rule against redistricting. Um, Voting Rights Act has been weakened. That's it. That's another story. Uh, the courts uh, perhaps have become more partisan. But again, if you have less split ticket voting, even the actual legislature legislators in the state um, are more polarized. So you have fewer members in the middle. Um, and that affects things in, in all directions. And of course, once when you get gerrymandered districts, that can make things even more extreme because when you have districts um, that favor one party or another, then there's less motivation for candidates to run in the middle. Andrew, I have a, a two-part question. John loves two-part questions. The first is, uh, you know, as, we, as the election comes down to the wire here, and I, I'm starting to see a lot of discussion is, is uh, you know, where Biden was and where Clinton was at this point in time, and it's about the same. Clinton ended up losing not the popular vote, but the Electoral College. Uh, how should we make sense of, of what's happening? How is it different than last time for just somebody like me who follows this stuff but doesn't really understand statistics the way I probably should to be on this podcast. <laughs> uh, Biden is doing um, better in the polls, consistently better in the polls than Clinton was four years ago. Mm -hmm. So they're not really in the same position. And Biden has been at about 54% of the two party vote for, for a couple months. The other part of the question was, I hear pollsters talking about or, you know, pundits talking about polls that lean conservative and those that lean liberal. Rasmussen, for instance, recently uh, is always considered one that sort of leans uh, more uh, conservative. And I saw in the approval ratings, Trump often is up. He's up plus. But they had a, like a 10-point swing, I think, in the approval rating on Rasmussen after the after the uh, debate, I think, the first debate. What do we make of polls that swing like that? When a poll swings a lot, you want to look at the percentage of Democrats, Republicans, and independents among the respondents. Mm -hmm. So typically, mm -hmm. we found we wrote a research paper about this a few years ago. We found that when there's a big swing, that it tends to be a poll that oversamples one party or another. And it's not just chance. Uh, part of it is 
just randomly. It's a random, it's a random sample. Who knows who you're going to get? <clears throat> but part of it is that when a candidate is has bad news, his supporters are often less likely to respond to a poll. Now, you might say, well, they're less likely to respond to a poll. Maybe they're less likely to vote. But it's not quite the same thing. 60% of people vote. Only about like 1% of people respond to polls. So whether you respond to a survey is, is much more a contingent on your mood, I would think, um, than whether you would vote. Now, interestingly enough, I mean, it makes sense. Like, why respond to a poll? In the 1950s, arguably, it was more rational to respond to the Gallup poll than to vote. Because if you vote, you're one of whatever it is, you know, 50 million voters. But if you respond to the poll, you're one of 1,500 people oh. whose poll responses will be splashed all over the nation's newspaper the next day. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's no surprise that survey response rates were at 80% back then um, and vote, voting higher than voting rates. But now you're just, if you respond to a poll, you're, that's just one more of many, many, many surveys. So are there aspects of kind of this, this, all, this, this uh, device of always saying red state, blue state differences that drives you a little crazy? Is there, is there sort of this over, overly simplistic worldview that, and if, if there's parts of it that drive you crazy, I'm going to do a Richard. I'm going to ask sort of a second part of this question. If there are aspects that drive you crazy, what things, what could be done to, pro, to help inform and shed light on that? Yeah, it's hard. I think I have a big problem with talking about states for a few reasons. Um, first, it is ultimately voters who vote, not states. There's obviously a lot of variation within states, um, urban, suburban, rural, now, you know, that said, you're in, in, in Ohio, which is a Republican-leaning state, but you're in a college town, and you, in college towns have a lot, of, um, a lot of Democrats, and cities have a lot of Democrats. Uh, that said, I would guess that the college towns in Ohio are a bit more conservative than the college towns in California. Yes. And the college, and I would expect that even in Wyoming and Montana, the college towns are more liberal than the rest of the state, but they're probably much more conservative than the college towns um, in Illinois or, or even even Ohio. So there is something. I, I I guess I like the statistics framing where we think of predictors. So what yeah. state you live in is a predictor. How to think about that is is another story. Um, and there's been a lot of discussion. Like, how do you think about, like, is there something about Ohio? Is it mm -hmm. the people in Ohio and they happen to, to live there? Is there some interaction? Um, the other reason, I mean, talking about states is problematic because it it's kind of weird to put all states on the same footing, yeah. right? Yeah. So perhaps, like, you should say, like, the area of Columbus, Ohio, that has as many people as a lot of states. And so... If we're talking, you know, why should we talk about Montana and Wyoming and then talk about Ohio? We should talk about Montana, Wyoming, Columbus, Cleveland, Cincinnati, and so forth. I, can I just as a quick follow up? You you wrote your book, you know, in the you know about twelve years ago, give or take. What what's been one of the biggest shifts or changes that have occurred since when you wrote this book and describing this this the individual versus some of the state differences and voting patterns to what we're seeing now in twenty twenty. So when we wrote our book, uh, what we we found that within any state, richer people were more likely to vote for Republicans, um, but the richer states voted for Democrats. That's what 
it's kind of the book was about. But nowadays, the pattern is is much less strong. So you don't really see like within a given state, the richer people are not necessarily voting for Republicans anymore. So I think that then we've seen this with recent campaigns that more educated voters have moved toward the Democratic Party. And that's new. So when I was a student, the more educated voters were consistently Republicans. There is a clear income mm-hmm. education gradient. Now, income's a little different than education. The, the pattern mm-hmm. is clear there. But in then the the most then for a while we found the most educated people uh, are a little more democratic um, compared like people with graduate degrees. But it's like you could just think of in terms of professions. So like. Doctors and, and lawyers uh, used to be conservative Republicans, not the most conservative, but those mm-hmm. those professions tended to be conservative. And as you may know, back after World War II, one reason, and in the 1970s, one reason we didn't have a national health care plan in the 50s, the 40s, 50s, and 70s is the American Medical Association opposed it. Mm-hmm. Now, they may still oppose it. They're an organization, but doctors in general have, have changed. Now, one reason is that doctors are more likely to work for somebody now and less likely to be self-employed. So there's a shorthand that we like to, I like to say is that people who pay taxes are often Republicans and often conservative. People who get taxes are, tend to be liberal. So if like university professors, even if you work at a private university like I do, arguably I get taxes rather than pay taxes because mm-hmm. university is supported in so many ways by the government. And if you're working, if you're a teacher, you get taxes or a nurse or a doctor, even if you work for a private hospital, it's like quasi governmental. Right? Things have changed in terms of individual professions. Income is 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 more complicated. So I, when I think of income and education, one thing I like to think about is teachers and social workers. So a lot of yeah. teachers and social workers have master's degrees, and they're very liberal. Yeah. They right. tend to be very liberal. They don't get a lot of high salaries. So mm-hmm. higher salary um, positions or people who are well-educated in higher salaries are, are more conservative. So doctors are more conservative than teachers um, and social workers. There was even a graph that someone sent me a couple of years ago with some survey of doctors by subfield. And the richer subfields, like radiologists, were more conservative than pediatricians who get paid less. <laughs> so so oh, it, it's very, the ag, but I will say what's the aggregate pattern has changed. So it used to be very clear that within in, in most individual states, the Republicans are representing, getting the votes of the richer people. And you're not seeing that so much. And of course, that that does change politics if it changes who's, who's getting the votes. And, mm-hmm. and in some sense, it's kind of stunning that the parties still are so different on economic policy. Mm-hmm. So that, that although, yeah, there are some populist aspects of the Republican platform, and the Democrats are, are certainly very corporate friendly. Nonetheless, the Democrats still tend to favor redistributional policies, um, and the Republicans, you know, tend to favor policies that keep power in the hands of, of richer people. And for I'll just say, not a political comment, because based on your depending on your political ideology, both of these attitudes can seem to make sense. So, 
if you're a Democrat, if you're liberal, you can support redistribution, not out of not necessarily out of a desire to punish anybody, but be, because you think it's more fair and you actually think it benefits the general economy um, to to spread out the spending power. Conversely, if you have a conservative view, you can certainly argue that um, institutions that have more money have earned it and also that they can spend it more efficiently than the government can. So we, as political scientists, we have to kind of separate the ideological content from the empirical content because it's not kind of our job to judge someone's views. Um, it's more that we're trying to describe them. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking with Columbia University's Andrew Gelman. Andrew, this is going to come out a few weeks before the election. So what advice would you have for people as they're consuming news about the election? There's a lot of stories that are still out trying to say this voter in a cafe in rural Ohio is going to vote this way, and therefore they're representative of every rural voter and voter in every cafe in Ohio. Are there are there things you think that we should be keeping an eye of or be critical of when we're consuming news that are trying to predict voter behaviors in particular ways? I think that good journalists are informed about the statistics and they use these interviews as a way of bringing that to life. So a responsible journalist would look at polls and say that here's how people seem to be voting in rural Ohio or the rural Midwest, and then they'll interview voters who are consistent with that general pattern. It's, it's like if you write a textbook, you have an example that illustrates your main point. But you had the point already, you know, the example has a life of its own. So if they interview someone, that's that's the way it should be. But I think media organizations try to be pretty careful in, in being balanced in, in how they, they interview people. I mean, we can talk more about stories, but somehow the point of getting the individual interview is that you can learn something surprising from that inter individual interview. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't take that interview as being some statistical representation. It has a different value to it. You talked... Uh you talk about stories and you're, you're one of the few social scientists that I know that have actually written scholarly articles on storytelling. And in your two, I think this was a 2014 article, when do stories work? You made the point that I want to follow up on because it, it relates to something you just said. You said stories are useful to illustrate ideas. But you also said that they are often evidence themselves. Can you talk a little bit about what that, what you meant by that? Sure. So my colleague and I um, were interested in the idea that we learn from stories. So the usual way that storytelling, I think, is presented uh, to social scientists or even to statisticians as, as a tool. So what we're told is people think of the world in terms of stories. People are not natural calculators. So therefore, if you want to convey your idea, embed it in a story, like kind of make, like make your research into a TED talk, like give the elevator pitch. And it's very much like a, a broadcast idea. Like, so it's, a, it's an outward idea. You have your brilliant idea, but you have to con convince these stupid idiots out there. So you better tell a story and, 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 and sell it like that. And I, we felt that we had a more inward take on it, which was that when we reflected on how we made our decisions and how we had our social science understanding, it was influenced by stories. Even in statistics, 
if you, why do you use this statistical method rather than that one? Like beyond just, well, my advisor taught it to me. Often it's, oh, I went to this talk and there was this great example and I saw this, right? It's not like there was a theorem, right? And so we're influenced by stories ourselves. And so I wanted to understand how that could be. And it struck me that effective stories have two characteristics. Um, one is that they're anomalous and the other is that they're immutable. By anomalous, I mean a story is, has a twist. It has a surprise in it. A story is like exploratory data analysis. It tells us something we didn't already know. And what that suggests is that when interpreting a story, we should think about what our preconceptions were. It's good to understand your priors because then you'll understand what you appreciated about the story. And even if it's Little Red Riding Hood, you know, is what's the twist, right? What's the surprise? Like the whole story, like a girl goes into the woods and there's wolves. Like we knew that there are wolves in the woods, right? So in in some way, that's that's a very simple story. The simplest version is the preconception is, hey, girls can walk wherever they want. Kids can do what they want. No, you'll get eaten by a wolf. But then you get to the whole twist and, oh, well, I was expecting she was going to get eaten by the wolf, but actually she was very resourceful. And the wolf was resourceful too. People are not always what they seem, like, et cetera. But, but mm -hmm. to really to under, get the most out of such a story, you also want to understand where you are coming from that. So that's mm -hmm. part of it. The other part is that the story should be immutable. Um, so this is like the, the famous uh, rock that Samuel Johnson kicked to refute Bishop Barclay, that a story, a real story has like these grits of unexpected truth. So mm -hmm. it's different. We distinguish between what we call a story and a parable. So a parable you can adapt to make whatever lesson you want. A story is just there. You have to tell it the way it happened. Mm -hmm. And so if I think now, if I think about like this interview of some lady on the street in Ohio, what you're going to get out of it is you're coming into with your expectations about what do country folk like, and then you're going to learn something interesting if the interviewer just lets her talk a bit, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's more bits of information in 10 minutes of her speech than there are in all of your social science theories put together. It's just the nature <laughs> of social science theories that they have less information. That's kind of what a theory is about as a, a form of data reduction. Now, the paradox of storytelling is that in statistics, we say we learn from representative data or even random samples, but the essence of a story is that it's anomalous, which means it's surprising, which means it's atypical. So how do you resolve that? And so the way I resolved it is to say that in statistics, there are two things we do. One is that we look, we get um, representative samples and random samples and random assignment in order to learn about populations and distributions. That's, that's what might be called normal science. The other thing is what might be called revolutionary science, which is that we look for residuals and outliers and problems. Now, we always have to teach our students that when you say look for an outlier, that the purpose of looking for an outlier is not to throw it out, and not to just record it and say our data have four outliers, it's to actually look at it and see what went wrong, or maybe it didn't go wrong, right? And so we actually, in statistics, 
we have this second mode of statistics where we're actually looking for non-representative things and trying to learn from them. And that's how I feel like learning from stories mm -hmm. is. But again, it's tricky. If you have a million data points, you'll find all sorts of weird outliers and you don't <laughs> right. want to generalize yes. from them. Sure. Similarly, an unscrupulous journalist could interview, you know, could could do a little bit of selection bias and just, you know, you, you could cut 500 interviews and then find the one interviewer who brings up some weird issue. And the interviewer said, blah, 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 I care about plastic straws. What's up with the plastic straws? And they start shouting. And then you, you hear it on the radio and you're like, oh, yeah, plastic straws. That's what the people really care about. That's the real issue. <laughs> but actually, there was some selection bias. So it's not easy. So we learn from stories because of their anomalousness and their immutability. But there's enough stories out there that we can certainly do selection bias. And, of course, that's what social media is all about. The outrage of the week. Any week yes. you can find anybody, something ridiculous being done by any party. You can find someone who's done some embarrassing crime and, and, and so forth. Yeah, this is this is great. I mean, what the, so I'm thinking about the, that you had mentioned uh, just before we started the recording today that you were involved in teaching a class on communicating statistics. And I, I was wondering, did you did you connect in your class, the, the communicating statistics class, some of these ideas about how, how how did story how did you integrate some of these ideas about stories into this class of communicating statistics? Yeah, so that was we call it communicating data and statistics because I guess data is like a good selling point. Um, we <laughs> I well, I tell students that every statistician is going to become a teacher. Now m most of our students don't become statistics professors, but. If you're a statistician working in government or industry, you end up spending much of your time explaining statistics to people. It's mm -hmm. just that's kind of your role. And so we have to learn that. So we're not the, we, in communication, we taught we discussed several different skills, teaching, writing, um, speaking, collaborating, programming um, and statistical graphics. And about half the class was actually about like statistical graphics and about half. So I kind of alternated weeks of the graphics with weeks of kind of softer skills oh, like nice. storytelling, writing, um, communication, collaboration um, and uh, and teaching. And it's it's like it's funny because you can have a whole class you could teach. I used to teach a class on teaching statistics. And every week we would discuss, we'd, the students were all like teaching assistants in various classes. So they'd visit each other's classes and we'd discuss teaching tricks. I have a book with Deb Nolan on, on yeah. teaching statistics. And we're like, we did all these techniques. Um, but then the class, I mean, you could do that whole class. It's just that like, there's not time for everything. So I ended up folding that in and it became just two weeks of this, this larger class. But storytelling is part of it. So I do have them practice storytelling and, and writing. I have an, I, I think it's maybe even the first day of class um, or the second day of class, we, we have an assignment where they have to write a story in, in five minutes. So yeah. we first, I first demonstrate. So I, I, I show off, you know, so I ask them, I say, pick a topic <laughs> and they pick a topic and then I'm, I type it and there's, they can see it displayed on the screen. I spend one minute I, I spend one minute outlining this, this, the story, like what I'm going to write. And then I start writing. And then when, when one minute's left, I look at what I wrote and I, I revise it. 
And so I say, you should be able to write a story in, in five minutes. And then I have them do this in pairs. They each do that. And so they, they practice that. And then we, having done that, then we talk about what makes the story work. And, uh, you know, yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Andrew, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thank, thank you. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.